Welcome back to the Hemingway Brainiac List Marathon of Excellence. Hope you're having an excellent life. Um, what are we talking about here? We're up to chapter 12. Now, have we got comments yet? I'm jumping on early. It's early in the morning. Usually I do my podcast at night. So I'm logging on to do this, or at least starting a good, uh, you know, 12 hours earlier than usual. But I can see Swim says the Mama Fishy has jumped in with a comment, which means let's proceed. Uh, my prompt was zzz. I fell asleep on the uh, Z key of my keyboard, apparently, last night. Um, look, you all know me by now. I just don't want to go into, like, religious, deep religious conversations. I just, uh, it, I just can't keep my eyes open to it. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, yeah. So that, that, this is one of those chapters. Um, painfully boring for me. Swim says, I yawned all through George's soliloquy about yawning. <laughs> George's smugness about his own intellect was on full display here. I found an extract for a treatise that provides an explanation of George's antipathy of Catholicism. It says, in part, for decadent artists such as Wilde, who was born into an insular Anglicism, Catholicism provided a source of a new artistic colour and spiritual quickening. For the novelist George Moore and James Joyce, who were born into the notoriously Jansenistic Irish Catholic tradition, the church became a primary source of personal and national intellectual paralysis. So stultifying was its influence that a young Moore, the son of well-to-do landed family in country Mayo, County Mayo, felt compelled to flee to France as soon as he came into his majority in 1873. The internet tells us Jansenism emphasised original sin, human depravity, especially of the flesh, and need to suffer to prevail in the end. The Catholic Church in Ireland became an outpost of Jansenism, especially its intense focus on bodily functions and the need to repress all sexual urges. The result was generations of Irish who lived by a creed that emphasised above all that sins of the flesh were the worst evil of all and that keeping the body pure was the greatest gift to God. And there's a link irishcentral.com to an article says why Irish Catholic Church became haven for child abuse. Well, I know that in cultures that heavily suppress sexuality, they sort of force sexuality to become uh, more sordid. You know, those cultures tend to keep their sexual practices very private but then also have the kind of most depraved kinks <laughs> as you could say uh, I know this from living in Japan where um, they're all very very uh, buttoned up you know not outwardly sexual at all 
uh, and then, you know, when you're getting a, a, you know, some sashimi in 7-Eleven, you look to your left and there's just all these very, very weird sexual magazines with things that just should not be, uh, you know, in any magazine, let alone just sitting next to the counter. Um, so, yeah, it's, I don't know. And that was, I remember asking my Japanese friends, like, what is with this? Like, this is, this is too much. This is weird. And that was the explanation that I got. Um, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but, uh, I can see like similarities to the description that you've given there where the, the Irish were, uh, compelled to be shamed about any kind of anything of the body and you suppress it and suppress it and suppress it. And when it eventually comes out, it's an ugly thing. Oh, I'm on my treadmill today, <clears throat> at least for now. I've been on my treadmill every day, but not always walking because um, I do find it quite difficult to read and walk at the same time. Nonetheless, here we are. Uh, this is chapter 13. The great French writers of the 19th century were Victor Hugo, Lamartine, Balzac, uh, Gautier, Michelet, Renan, Taine, Saint-Beuve, Gerard de Naval, Merami, Le Goncourt, Georges Sand, Flaubert, Zola, Maupassant, and all these were agnostics. Guizot was a Protestant. His historical works have, I suppose, some value. John Eglinton will tell me about him, and glad of an excuse for a visit to the National Library. I went forth after dinner to talk literature again, arriving in Kildare Street about half past nine, when John Eglinton was writing the last of those mysterious slips of paper, cataloguing, I think he calls it. A visitor is welcome after half past nine, and in the sizzle of electric light we debate till ten. Then he comes back to smoke a cigar with me, or I go with, or I go home with him. He lacks the long, clear vision of A.E., but when an idea is brought close to him, he appreciates it shrewdly, and it is the surety that he will understand a little later my idea better than I understand it myself. That makes his first embarrassment so attractive to me. In the evening I'm about to relate, I found him a little more short-sighted than usual, his little face wrinkled up as he sought to grasp, to understand my discovery that Catholics had not produced a book worth reading since the Reformation, for John Englinton only understands his own thoughts, and it is with difficulty that he is rolled out of them. You mean that all English literature has been produced in the Protestant tradition, but I am afraid that Protestants will think this is a somewhat too obvious truth. Of course, we all know that Chaucer is the only English Catholic poet. My dear John Eglinton, you've not understood. A worried look came into his face, and in his desire to understand, he seemed like getting cross with me. My belief is that Catholic countries haven't produced a book. John gasped. But France? We went into that question and were talking of Pascal when the attendant came in to ask John for the keys. It was three minutes to ten. Shall I ring the bell, sir? 
John agreed that the bell might be rung, and we watched the odd mixture of men and women leave their books on the counter and go through the turnstiles. John had to wait till the last left, and the last was a little old gentleman, about five feet high, who has come to the library every night for the last thirty years to read Dickens, and nothing but Dickens. He passed through the turnstile, we followed him. The fireman was consulted, and we all and when all the lights were out, John was free to go over a walk with me. I think it was in Baggett Street that I succeeded in bringing home to him the importance of my discovery. But Spain, he interjected, Don Quixote. Spanish literature is contemporaneous with the Council of Trent when the Church defined her dogmas and and Don Quixote is an unethical is as unethical, he said, as David Copperfield. Whatever merit Lope de Vega may have had in his day, he has none now. And we discussed for a while the interesting question whether the merits of books are permanent or temporary. Byron's poetry conquered Europe, and today everybody knows it to be doggerel. And in our understanding of Coldren's plays are merely rows of little wooden figures, moved hither and thither by a mind that seems gracious, despite his conviction that the Inquisition was a kind and beneficent institution. All the same, Shelley and Goethe admired Calderon. Shelley translated some pages. John Eglinton agreed with me that these are the only pages of Shelley that we cannot read. He spoke of St. Patrick's Purgatory. It passes beyond perception, and he laughed steadily. Calderon, in spite of his piety, did not succeed in avoiding heresy, for in ecclesiastic zeal he seems to have identified himself with anti-nominalism. Perhaps he was condemned. You quite understand that my point isn't that a Catholic hasn't written a book since the Reformation, but that 99%, well, 95% of the literature of the world has been produced by Protestants and agnostics. I see what you mean now. And the dear little man of the puckered face listened on his doorstep to an exoneration, sorry, to an exhortation to write a little more of that beautiful English which he so wastefully spends in his conversation. He listened, but unwillingly. He does not like my literary exhortations. And I pondered on his future as I walked home. He will sink deeper and deeper into his armchair and into his own thoughts. The closing of the public houses told me that it must be near eleven, and the thought of dear Edward sitting behind his screen smoking led me to Leinster Street. The sword motive brought the candlelight glimmer down the stairs. The door opened, and two old cronies went upstairs to talk once more of painting and literature. Two old cronies who had known each other in boyhood, who had talked all through our lives, on the same subjects, Edward's feeling things perhaps a little deeper than I have ever done. When the master builder has been played, he walks from the theatre into the green and sits under the hawthorns in some secluded spot. His eyes filled with tears at the memory, as he would say to himself, of so much beauty. Was it Yeats described him as the sketch of a great man? The sketch, he said, Le Bush better realises his idea of Ed, dear Edward, 
but Yeats does not know French, and while my eyes followed Edward about the room, I wondered if it would be wise for me to exchange, were it possible, a wine glass of intelligence for a rumour of temperament. We have gone through life together, myself charging windmills, Edward holding up his hands in amazement. Gotta pause for a second, I'll come back. All right, I'm back. Several hours later. Sorry, there was a pause there if you didn't notice. Uh, where were we up to? More culture and less common sense than the Spanish original, I said, and I watched him move ponderously about his ungainly room, so like himself. There is something eternal about Edward, some an entity come down through the ages, and myself another entity, reciprocating entities. I said, glancing at some pictures of famous churches. Edward pins photographic reproductions on the dusty wallpaper. A beautiful church caught my eye, and desiring Edward's criticism of it, as one desires an old familiar tune, I asked him if the church were an ancient or a modern one. And answering that it was one of Pugin's churches, he lifted his glasses up on his nose and peered into the photograph, absorbed for some moments by the beauty which he perceived in it. The church set us talking about Pugin's genius and whether the world would ever invent a new form of architecture, or whether the age of architecture was over and done like the stone and the bronze ages. Edward's churchwarden was now drawing famously, his glass of grog was by his side, and the knights in the temple, when he used to tell me that he would like to write his plays in Irish, rose up before me. All his prejudices are the same, I said, more intense perhaps, he is a little older, a little more liable to catch cold, and he spoke to me of the necessity of a screen to protect him from the draught coming under the door. Have a cigar. He pushed the box towards me and continued to smoke his pipe. Although not a priest, there is something hierarchic about him, and I thought of ancient Egypt. And then our friendship. It was drawing to a close mysteriously as a long summer evening. We shall not see much of each other at the end of our lives, I said, wondering how the separation was going to come about. Not liking to tell him of my great discovery, fearing to pain him. You're very silent tonight, George, he jerked out, breaking the silence at last. Of what are you thinking? Of a great discovery. What? Another? I thought you had come to the end of them. Your first was the naturalistic novel, your second impressionistic painting. My third was your plays, Edward. The Irish Renaissance, which is but a bubble. Oh, it is only a bubble, is it? He said, with his great, jolly, great purple face shaking like a jelly. You may laugh, I said, but it is no laughing matter for the Catholic Church if it can be shown that no Catholic has written a book since the Reformation. I wish you wouldn't laugh like that. At the end of the next fit of laughter, he bit a piece off the end of his churchwarden, and getting up from the sofa, he searched for another along the chimney piece, and when he had filled it, he said to me, who had been sitting quite silent, Now tell me about this new Mara's Nest. I've told you already there's been no Catholic literature since the Reformation, and very little before it. Boccaccio and Arisotto were pagans, Michelangelo and Raphael. But Michelangelo painted the Last Judgment, and Raphael the Holy Family. We talked for an hour, and his brain 
cleaning. Suddenly he said, Raphael and Michelangelo lived in a Catholic country, came of Catholic inheritance and painted Christian subjects. You seem to me, Edward, to be satisfied with a very simple inquiry, I might say, superficial inquiry, into a matter of great interest and intimately concerned with our movement. For why should we change the language of a country in which literature is forbidden? unless, indeed, some special indulgences are granted for, for, for prayers in Irish. Of course, if so, the Irish Renaissance is but a bubble. And what about your mission? Good God, I hadn't thought of that, I said, and getting out of my chair, I walked up and down the room, overcome. What are you thinking of? Edward asked at the long end of a long silence. Of what am I thinking? Of what you just said now. What did I say? You reminded me of my mission. Great God, Edward. I wish you wouldn't take the sacred name in vain. My life has been sacrificed for a bubble. But you knew Ireland was a Catholic country. I was bidden here. If some nun said she had seen a troop of angels and the Virgin Mary and wouldn't believe it all, you wouldn't believe it all. But when I tell you that on the road to Chelsea, seeing that I was profoundly moved, Edward ceased laughing and began to speak of Newman. Newman was a convert, I said, and he brought... Some of the original liberty of the Protestant into his Catholicism, isn't that so? Edward puffed at his pipe and seemed to think that perhaps the convert was not quite so obedient as the born Catholic. It's a very serious thing for me, I said, rising. I suppose I must be getting home. He lit the candle and took me downstairs, and at the grating which guards the tobacconist's door, I said, I haven't examined your question thoroughly. I may discover some Catholic writers. Do you know of any? Edward said he could not say offhand, and I crossed the tram line, thinking how I had been ensnared and wondering who was the snarer. And that is the end of chapter uh, 13, and the end of the podcast for today. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.